Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk uh, chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, and uh, last or two weeks ago, we we really just looked at verse 2 with Habakkuk's response to what God had declared in chapter 2. And uh, he, he talks about how this, he's heard this report of God and, and he's overwhelmed with who God is and what he has done. He's overcome with fear, but this fear causes him to actually ask God to do his work again, to show forth his glory once again in the midst of the years. And then he cries out in wrath, of course, remember mercy. That is, Lord, as you bring judgment upon Israel, we also ask that you remember mercy, despite the fact that Israel is deserving of judgment. And then from verses 3 all the way through 15, we have this vision or this description of God. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. But let me read for us from, the, from uh, beginning in verse 2 all the way to the very end, just so you see the whole chapter together. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place, At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
God the Lord is my strength. He makes me my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, speak to our souls. Speak to our minds. Give us understanding, but also give us awe and reverence. Cause us to marvel at who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you knew, as a Christian, that dark days lay ahead of you, what would you do to prepare? If you knew that the days ahead would be so horrific that it would lead you to despair of life itself, what would you do to, what would you do to help yourself not lose hope as a Christian? If we knew that dark, painful, horrific days lay ahead for the church, what would we do as the church to help us get through those dark days and not lose hope. We know there are many practical things we would need to do. We would, one, need to care for one another. We would need to strategize. We would need to use our resources wisely. But none of those things would actually matter if we didn't believe and have hope that those dark days would one day be lifted. In other words, we would need to have real confidence that though the days ahead may be extremely dark and extremely painful, they are but temporary. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. And this is why one of the things we would need as the people of God is the assurance that one day deliverance will come by the hand of God. But where would we get that assurance? How might we have confidence to believe that God will bring deliverance for his people? Well, I think Habakkuk gives us a clue in chapter 3. Habakkuk and the people of Israel are in the exact situation that I just described. Habakkuk knows that dark days lay before the people of Israel. Babylon is coming and Babylon is going to unleash horror upon the nation of Israel. Many will be killed and many will be taken into captivity where they will be in captivity for 70 years. See, Habakkuk knows that this is partly God's hand of judgment upon his own people for their forsaking of God and his ways. He knows that it's just, but that doesn't change the fact that it's going to be dreadful. So what does Habakkuk do to prepare himself, but also to prepare the people of Israel for what is coming? How does he help God's covenant people not lose hope, despite knowing that what lays before them is destruction, suffering, and pain? What does he do? Well, here's what I think he does. He paints a portrait of God doesn't create it himself. Rather, he is describing what God has already revealed and done. He paints a portrait of God that is so powerful and transcendent 
and reminds them that this God has been their deliverer in the past and will continue to be their deliverer in the present and in the future. In other words, he calls to mind the wonderful works of God in Israel's history. And the logic is this. If God has delivered our people in the past, he will deliver us again in the future. Therefore, do not lose hope. Here's why. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And what he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, he will fulfill because he keeps his word. And so all we're going to do this morning is make our way through verses 3 to 15, where Habakkuk describes some of the historical events of Israel, where God demonstrated his power and delivered them from their enemies. Now, there are two things we'll we'll see as we make our way through these verses. Some of the things that are described are speaking to specific events in Israel's history. But there are also some things that are more general that simply articulate through imagery God's incredible power and transcendence over creation. The other thing I want to say is this. This whole section is eschatological in nature. Now, I realize that's a big word, but it's an important word, and I want us to understand it. So let me explain what I mean by eschatological. It's the idea of last things. So when someone asks, what is your eschatological view? What they mean is, what do you believe about the end times? How is it all going to unfold? That is, it's eschatology. It's the study of last things. But the word itself is more than simply just end times. It carries with it the idea, as one commentator puts it, the direction and goal of God's active covenant faithfulness in and for his created order. In other words, eschatology is the unfolding of God's purposes and works that consummates in the telos, that is the end goal for his purposes. And this passage that we're looking at, though it describes past events, it's eschatological in nature. That is, it's pointing forward to the end goal, to the consummation of God's redemptive purposes, and we'll see that as we go through. So those are just some introductory comments. So now let's go through the passage together. And remember, the whole point is, what does Israel need to endure the dark days ahead under Babylonian oppression? And Habakkuk's answer is a transcendent vision of God and his works that demonstrate that he will deliver them once again. And the first event we see described here is actually God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Look at verses 3 to 5. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Teman and Mount Paran are locations in Edom, places associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the works of God on behalf of Israel through the Exodus. He came from Teman and Mount Paran. The imagery here is God is on the move. Or you could put it like this 
God is on the march. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. What's the closest thing we can use in our sensory experience to describe God's God's majesty and splendor? It's light, light from the sun. See, most likely this whole section is referring to God leading Israel in the cloud by day and fire by night, but also his descending upon Mount Sinai. Rays of light flashing from his hand. But Habakkuk says it was there that he veiled his power. God manifested his glory and power to Israel, but it was still veiled. For no human nor people could see the full manifestation of God's glory and his power and live. No one could look upon such a glory and endure. We can't even look at the sun without going blind. The Apostle Paul tells us in describing God in 1 Timothy 6, he says this about God, God who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's not just that no one has ever seen God, it's that no one can see God and live. And so he describes the majesty and power of God on Mount Sinai. But look at what else he says in verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. What does that remind us of? Well, the plagues in Egypt, by which God conquered Pharaoh and the Egyptians and rescued Israel from 400 years of slavery. This was the great act of salvation by God under the old covenant. This was the event that Israel looked to when they remembered God's salvation. And as New Covenant believers, we look back to Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation. But the Israelites look back to the Exodus. And here's the idea. If God can and did conquer Pharaoh and Egypt, the world power at the time, and deliver his people from 400 years of slavery, God can and will he not also deliver us from Babylonian oppression according to his timing? And the answer, of course, is yes. But Habakkuk doesn't end there as he ponders the greatness of God and his works in redemptive history. In verse 6, we see Habakkuk articulate God's complete dominion and reign over all the earth. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. His measuring of the earth is a demonstration of his right to dominion over the earth as the creator. He looked and shook the nations. What an image. He does nothing but look, and the nations tremble. God doesn't have to act in order to overwhelm the nations. All he has to do is look. For the gaze of God is more terrifying than anything we could possibly imagine in life. Then he says this, then the eternal mountains were scattered. In light of the fact that God looked, the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
There's, there's a play on words here with the word eternal. Uh, mountains and hills were, were understood as the most ancient and uh, most permanent aspects of the creation. But when faced with God, their creator, they scatter in, in fear and the hills sink low. The eternal hills and mountains grovel in the dust as they encounter the one who is truly eternal. God has absolute reign and dominion over all the earth. And this is important for Israel to remember because this God who has reign over all the earth is their God. And when Babylon comes and brings harm, Habakkuk is saying, remember Israel. Remember, God has not stopped reigning. Even the mountains tremble before him, Israel. Now Habakkuk's not done bringing up God's powerful acts of deliverance in Israel's history. Verse 7 mentions two such events. Look at verse 7. I saw the tents of Kishan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Both of these events are recorded in the book of Judges. The scripture reading this morning is in reference to the people of Midian. But Kishan was the first oppressor of Israel when they entered the promised land And God delivered Israel by raising up Othniel, one of the judges, to deliver God's people. And then, of course, you have the story of the Midianites, which was read earlier. God defeats the Midianites through Gideon and his 300 men to make it clear that Israel was delivered not by their great numbers, but by the power of God. Israel's hope is not their numbers, nor their strength nor their mighty warriors. Their hope is the power of God to do that which they could never do on their own. I think that's an important lesson for us as the covenant people of God, the church. I heard rhetoric over the last two years, and I probably said it at times, that if the whole church of Jesus Christ came together and took our stand against some of the things the government had been doing, the government couldn't have stopped us. And that might be true. But you know what the assumption is in that? The strength of the church resides in its numbers. That our deliverance from government overreach resides in our numbers. The strength of the church does not reside in its numbers, but in the power of God. Israel's strength did not reside in its numbers, but in the power of God. Israel was not a glorious nation, and yet God used them to conquer the other nations. The church of Jesus Christ expanded across the Roman Empire, not because of its numbers, but because of the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel. But we need to ask here, why does Habakkuk bring up these two stories in the book of Judges out of all the stories he could have chosen? Well, for one, he wants to emphasize for the people of Israel God's power in deliverance. But also, there's a pattern in the book of Judges that is also the pattern of what Israel is currently facing during Habakkuk's time. The book of Judges is all about what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes. And in the book of Judges, there's a constant pattern of Israel forsaking God. 
And when they forsake God, God then raises up another nation like the Midianites to oppress them, which was according to the covenant stipulations that they agreed to at Mount Sinai. Then when Israel began to be oppressed and suffer, they would repent and cry out for mercy, and God would then show them mercy and raise up a judge to deliver them. And this happened over and over again in the book of Judges. Israel sinned. God judged by sending a nation against them. Israel would then repent and cry out for deliverance, and God would then raise up a man to deliver them. That's the pattern. And Habakkuk understands that that same pattern is at work here. Babylon coming against Israel is God's judgment against Israel's long history of rebellion and forsaking God's ways. But just as in the book of Judges, the stories don't end in judgment. They end in God's mercy and deliverance. So too, Israel's situation here will not end in judgment, but deliverance and salvation. And Habakkuk is conveying that same truth here. You see, God did judge Israel in the book of Judges, but he over and over again showed mercy and delivered them. God will judge Israel now under the hands of wicked Babylon, but he will once again show mercy and deliver Israel from the clutches of Babylonian oppression. So as Habakkuk continues to retell some of the history of Israel's deliverance, where does he turn next? Well, it seems that he actually returns to the Exodus narrative, but there are also allusions to Joshua and the conquest of the nations. And he begins this through these rhetorical questions that he begins in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? And the answer, of course, is no. God's wrath was not against the Nile River when he turned it to blood. His wrath wasn't against the Red Sea when he split it for Israel to cross over, nor when he separated the Jordan River. These acts were part of God's judgment upon Israel and also salvation for Israel. And what you see here at the end of verse 8 is this, this depiction of God as a mighty warrior riding upon his chariot, bringing judgment to his enemies and salvation to his people. And then he begins to unpack what this mighty warrior is all about in verse 9. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The mountains and the great deep see God coming as a mighty warrior and they melt away. They utterly tremble. The deep lifts its hands on high to suggest surrender. It's interesting that the deep is often used in the scripture to convey all that is opposed to God. And the deep here is lifting its hands in surrender. Look at verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. This is most likely a reference to Joshua 10 where the sun and the moon stand still, or the sun stands still while Joshua brings deliverance for the people of Israel in battle. 
at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Again, imagery of God marching as a warrior. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. And this is probably a reference to the conquest, to the conquest, God judging the nations through Israel. He trampled on the nations like an ox would trample upon the grain. That's the imagery there of he, he threshed the nations in anger. Remember, God had told Abraham that his people would be enslaved for 400 years. And he tells Abraham in Genesis 15 that it's not until the Amorites' sin is complete before he delivers Israel. That is, it's not until the Amorites have gone past the point of no more mercy. And when their sin was complete, God marched across the nations and swept them away. He threshed the nations in his righteous anger. Now in verses 13 to 15, Habakkuk makes explicit what's implicit through the passage. In verses 13 to 15, Habakkuk explains the purpose for God's actions in history in relation to Israel. And here it is. His purpose in all these events was the salvation of his people and the destruction of the wicked. The purpose in all these events was the salvation of his people and the destruction of the wicked. Look at verse 13. You went out. You went on this march. Why? For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. This is why God rode his chariot of salvation. Why he marched as a great warrior. For the salvation of his anointed people. To deliver them from their enemies. But how did he do this? Well, look at, look at the rest of verse 13. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That is, you totally decimated him. Verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is most likely a reference to Pharaoh and his armies. God crushed the head of the house of the wicked, Pharaoh. And God did this by turning their own weapons against them. That is, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. How often God does this, turning the, we the weapons of the wicked upon themselves. They dig a hole for the righteous... And they themselves end up falling in. They came to scatter and devour the poor, but God turned it on their own heads. In verse 15, Habakkuk describes this powerful picture of horses trampling upon the sea and surging waters. In the ancient world, the sea was viewed as the place of darkness, chaos, and evil. That's why in the book of Revelation, the great beast comes up out of the sea. But here Habakkuk tells us that God riding on his chariot has trampled upon the sea. What a picture of victory over evil. And this, of course, is simply Habakkuk 
retelling the things that God did in the past for Israel. But again, why is he doing this? Why is he telling their history? So that the people of Israel, including himself, will know that though the Babylonians are coming, our fate will not ultimately be destruction, but salvation. That God will crush the head of the house of Babylon. That once again, God will come to our rescue when we have borne the chastisement that we deserve and when we cry out for mercy. That though dark days lay before us, at some point the sun will rise and the darkness will be vanquished. And God did in fact rescue Israel from Babylonian oppression. After 70 years of captivity, he raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia, and God calls him his anointed, and he conquered the Babylonians and allowed the Israelites to return back to their home. This was Israel's second exodus. Now all of this is Habakkuk describing God's historical saving acts at certain moments in Israel's history. But remember, this passage is eschatological in nature. That is, it's not just speaking to the past, but it's also pointing to the future. That is, what God has done in the past is a smaller picture of what he's promised to do in the future on a cosmic scale. In other words, there's a day coming where God will once again march through the earth and judge the nations in righteousness and bring salvation to his people and crush the head of the wicked. See, when Habakkuk says that God crushed the head of the house of the wicked, I think the ultimate fulfillment of this is in Jesus crushing the head of Satan. Do you remember the words that God spoke to the serpent that is Satan in the garden in Genesis 3.15? God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is, there will be conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You will cause harm to the offspring of this woman. But ultimately... The offspring of this woman will crush your head. And this is why when Jesus, born of woman, was upon that cross, accomplishing accomplishing salvation and deliverance for his people, where he died for the sins of his people, he was indeed bruised by the serpent. We're told that Satan entered into Judas to betray him. Satan bruised Jesus' heel in afflicting him with horrific suffering upon the cross. But through his suffering, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. He turned his weapons against him. That's why in Hebrews 2.14, the writer of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. That is, because we as the children of God share in flesh and blood, we are, we are human beings, 
Jesus himself, the Son of God, also chose to share in our flesh and blood for this reason, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He used the very thing that Satan had power over against Satan. Through his own death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus rose and ascended to the Father's right hand, and the scriptures testify that he is coming again, and every eye will see him, and he's coming again to finish what he started, to bring about the consummation of the salvation of his people. And this coming is one of both judgment and salvation. He will judge the nations and put an end to the house, to the head of the house of the wicked forever. The Apostle John is granted this glorious vision of the return of Jesus in Revelation 19. And it's something to behold. Listen to these words. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, just as God threshed the nations in the past, so he is going to do it again through Jesus, his son. And this will be done on a cosmic scale. But he's also coming to bring the past what he started in saving a people for himself. He will save his people once and for all from the power of sin and the power of Satan. As Paul says in Romans 16 to 20 to, his, to, the, to the Christians in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, Habakkuk and Israel endured the dark days that lay before them by looking to past events of God's deliverance with the assurance that he would bring that deliverance to them once again in the future. And we as the new covenant people of God, the church, must do the same. Israel looked back to the Exodus to remind them of God's salvation and the assurance that he would rescue them again. We as the church look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus to remind us that Jesus has saved us. And that past saving event is the grounds for our confidence that he will come again and bring to completion what he started. And so if dark days lay before us, which I don't know if they do, but if dark days lay ahead of us for the church, remember this. 
The story doesn't end in darkness. The story ends with the rising of the sun. Our story ends in salvation, not destruction, and therefore we have hope because our King is coming. So how do we respond to all of this? Well, I want to just say a few things in light of what we've seen here. First, if you're not a Christian that is a follower and lover of Jesus, Jesus is going to return. I don't know when. No human does, and any human who claims he does, you ought not listen to him. But he has promised to return. And when he returns, he will do two things. One, he will judge and destroy the wicked. And two, he will bring salvation to his people and give them everlasting life. And the only way for you to not be destroyed alongside the wicked, according to the scriptures, is to repent of your sins, that is to turn away from them and believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the scriptures tell us that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. When he died on that cross, that was a form of judgment day. He bore the judgment in our place. And those who believe that Jesus has saved them from their sins are those whom Jesus will save when he comes again. But to reject Jesus in the here and now, to refuse to believe upon him and surrender to him means that when he returns, you will be rejected by him. The trains of judgment and salvation are coming to this world. Which train are you getting on? The train that leads to death or the train that leads to eternal life? Jesus offers you salvation, but you must embrace him because he is the salvation you need. And I implore you this morning to cry out to Jesus for him to save you. God rescued Israel from Babylon, but you need to be rescued from sin and death. Secondly, brothers and sisters, to those of you who are followers of Jesus. What Habakkuk does here is paint a picture of the great God that we worship. And he does this so that when darkness comes, we will remember the transcendent God who is on our side. We need a grand vision of a transcendent God for the darkest of days, because that grand vision of God will empower us to endure those dark days. As Tozer once said, the man who comes to a right, a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. We need to behold the great works of our transcendent God in history to remind ourselves of his faithfulness to his people from generation to generation to generation. God will not abandon us and he is powerful enough, enough to get us through the darkest days. 
But we must look to Him. We must have our eyes set on Him. See, because of the vision that Habakkuk had of God, he was able to respond the way he does in verses 16 to 19, which we'll look at in two weeks. See, we need to behold the glory and wonders of God and His works on behalf of His people. I really mean this. The greatest threat to the church is not potential political tyranny, the forsaking of Christian morality within society, and whatever else you could come up with. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is when the church loses its vision of a transcendent, all-powerful God who is on their side. That is the greatest threat to the church. Which means, and this is my final thing I want to say, this means we need to be devoted, devoted to contemplating the transcendence and works of God revealed in his scriptures. That's what Habakkuk did. In the midst of impending judgment from Babylon, in the midst of horrific days at his, store, at his doorstep, what does he do? Where does he turn? He turns to the scriptures and contemplates the great works of God in Israel's history. He turns to the book to be reminded of who our God is and what he's capable of. Dear saints, what's going to get us through the potential dark days is having our hearts and our minds immersed, immersed in the revelation of God. It will be the firm rock to stand upon when all the earth gives way. I want to end off by reading this quote by Elizabeth Elliot in reference to her father. And I might have shared this quote before, but but listen to these powerful words. She said this, A Christian who is saturated with the word, my father wrote, is likely to have a calm, wholesome outlook on life to be kept steady in the path of God's will in either joy or sorrow wealth or poverty he is likely to he is likely to be a pleasant companion not voluble in aimless talk and he will not be overly disturbed by world conditions A Christian who is saturated with the word is one who will not be overly disturbed by world conditions. May we be a people so saturated in the word of God for the sake of beholding the greatness and faithfulness of our God so that we might be a people who will not lose hope. Brothers and sisters, our God will not abandon us. And the proof of that is this. The church is still living today. He will not abandon his people. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for too often thinking small thoughts of you. God, help us to behold the wonder of who you are. Give us yearning and longing to contemplate your scriptures 
and what you have revealed about yourselves, about yourself. And give us the strength as your people to be faithful no matter what may lay before us, whether it be prosperity or famine, death or life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.